Welcome to A Word from the Valley, a weekly podcast produced for you from Zion Lutheran Church in Middletown, Maryland. For more information about our faith community and our weekly worship services, visit us at zionmiddletown.org or find us on Facebook. We hope you have a great week, and God bless. I think the last few parables that we have uh, looked at during worship, while they have been controversial and subversive, they were still pretty fairly straightforward. The kingdom of God isn't fair. The kingdom of God is full of hypocrites. And we don't own the kingdom of God. God owns it. This week, the parable is not so straightforward. The parable is certainly controversial and subversive, just like the previous week's parables. But this one is is downright confusing, especially with that ending. I can imagine after Jesus told this parable, all those listening were probably staring at him like my middle school confirmants stare at me when I'm teaching them confirmation stuff, right? Eyes wide open. What did he just say? Was that in English? Right? In Bible study this week, we briefly, and I I stress the word briefly because apparently I can't read a calendar, and I prepared a whole lesson for next week instead of this week, so we got to 7.30 and realized my mistake, so we briefly talked about this parable. We still talked about it very briefly. We talked about the strangeness of the parable and how hearing this parable makes us ask more questions than I think it gives us answers. You know, why did the king not invite everyone from the beginning of the parable, both the good and bad, to the banquet? Why does he wait to the end? Did the king discriminate against those marginalized people because he did not initially invite them? How could the invited guests reject the king's invitation when such rejection at the time would have been unreal in a patron-client system? And what about the king's use of extreme violence against not only those who attack his servants, remember Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other. It doesn't sound like you know, the king turned his other cheek here. But there's also the harsh treatment of this guest who did not wear the correct wedding robe. How does this violence make sense in the kingdom of God? In light of all this strangeness, the question still remains, what can we learn from this parable, even if the kingdom of God, if this parable is compared, if the kingdom of God is compared to this king? What is the radical, subversive message of this parable? The kingdom of God is like a, like a ruthless king? That doesn't sound right. The kingdom of God is, is like a, a king who who doesn't have anyone to call a friend. All his loyal subjects are only loyal when it profits them, themselves. It's the kingdom of God for people who claim to be loyal to the king, but are too busy to make time for the king when the king needs them to make time. Looking at the literary context of where this parable falls, we have to remember that Jesus has entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. On Monday, he turned over the tables in the temple And Tuesday, where we have been for the last three weeks, 
Jesus showed back up in the temple and has been there ever since, teaching these parables, what we have heard over the last three or four weeks. Jesus is, not, is talking not only to his followers in the temple, but also addressing the temple officials and Pharisees who have come to hear him teach in the temple. From a literary context, we can see how Jesus, through these parables, is challenging the uncaring work of the chief priests and the elders. Because nothing is more important than doing the will of God. Even though they were called, invited by God to do God's work, Jesus believes that they were neglecting making themselves busy with their own busyness. One could then interpret from these parables that that God does not give up on his work of saving people and calls others for that task. That message is a bit subversive. Jesus is in their house, within their walls, challenging their right to power. He's challenging their authority, just like they challenged his authority. But is he really saying that the position and authority of the religious leaders and elites, religious elites will not last forever because God will open a new door, break traditions into pieces, and continue his work through other people? That could be a dangerous, slippery slope. But it makes sense, though, in some ways. Because remember what he said back in Matthew 21, 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. Is this the religious elite's fate? Is this why the temple in Jerusalem was eventually destroyed in 70? God took away their position and authority because they were ignoring the will of God? Perhaps that is what Matthew is saying, but but I think that that this interpretation is a bit dangerous, especially for us today, because we're now the religious elite. Are we any different from these temple leaders? Do we misuse our authority and position? And if we do, is God going to destroy us like Rome destroyed Jerusalem and the temple? Perhaps this is the message, but I think there's more to it. I think there's more to this parable than just Jesus going off on the religious elite. Perhaps this parable is not so much about the judgment and harsh treatment against those who do not do the will of God, but rather the real focus of this parable is the radical invitation that the king does for the townsfolk. We see here through this parable that God's love extends to all, not just the elite and those who have no time for the king, God's invitation, just like the king's invitation, is for all of the people. But here's the problem. What happens when you get a bad apple mixed into the bunch? Radical love is great on paper, but loving everyone means loving everyone, including those who would do us harm. How do you deal with a Judas? When a person is a trusted member of the community one day and is public enemy number one the next. How do you explain God's love and radical inclusion when you've got people like Judas in every group, in every church? How do you love even those who hate us? For Matthew, the answer to this question has been given numerous times. God sends rain on both the religious and the unrighteous, on both the righteous and the unrighteous. He also makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. The ultimate moral demand, according to Matthew, is to love 
our enemies. And they slew no one from the community of the beloved, not even a guy like Judas. For Matthew, no judgment is possible until the end. Perhaps this is why Jesus has this guy at the end of the parable. Sometimes there is a wolf disguised as a sheep among the flock. On the surface, it seems like this guy is just a victim of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I sort of can relate to this guy. You know, I, don't, I didn't want to go to this wedding. I have to get all dressed up in the first place. I was just out going to the grocery store, and all of a sudden these people come with really big clubs and really big spears and saying, you come to the banquet or else. And I'm like, okay. Right? It feels like this man is just going about his business when he finds himself being invited to by the king to a wedding he can't say no to. Now that he's here, he gets thrown out. And not just thrown out of the wedding, but he gets thrown out into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. All because a guy wore a pair of jeans to the window. Is this just a guy in the wrong place at the wrong time? Or is Matthew describing situations like Judas? Situations that have spies among the group. Is this Jesus' way of helping his community contend with the problem of evil people among the good? I'm quite confident that Matthew's community has felt the fear of being turned into the authorities numerous times over. I'm sure many of them worry that there might be a spy among their group. How are we to deal with those spies? Jesus' answer? Radical inclusion Radical love towards all. That's our job. We love those who even would do us harm. But this is where the king comes in. The king will take care of finding those wolf among the lambs. For Matthew, final judgment is inevitable. We will all be judged on that last day, but Jesus does not feed into our fear of loving the wrong person. We must be an imitator of the one who radically loves the whole world. Are we acting like those who were first invited by the king to, the son's, to his son's wedding? Are we too busy when we are called upon God to participate in the wedding feast? Are we radically loving all those who come to worship the living God? And like I said last week, if this, if this message upsets you, if this message bothers you, then you're probably going to be really upset when you get to heaven. My internship supervisor once told me that... that um, that he thinks heaven is going to be filled with a lot of Christians going around saying, how'd you get in here? You're not supposed to be here at all. I condemned you to hell a long time ago. The kingdom of God is not ours. It's not fair. It's full of hypocrites. It's not full of the elite who have ignored the call of God to join the party, but rather is filled with good and sometimes evil people. Our God, the King, will take care of the latter. Our job is, is to enjoy the party and celebrate with the King and his son the wedding banquet that has no end.